Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello. Hey there. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm behind on everything. I'm behind on article review, story of academics lives, a dissertation review, and an article that I owe for a volume. And I don't know when I shall do these things, but yeah. I know this is one of the questions in in our, uh, we're doing a Q&A today. And I saw this and I was reading to the questions and someone asked about an update on your book. Yeah. I can give that updates? update. Yeah. So I just um, worked with Amber and Kylie all day this past Monday, MLK Day. Um, it was a day of labor for us. <laughs> and we we went through um, all the, the, we think the last changes, if there are any changes left, they'll be small, she said confidently. But um, I, American publishers don't like the Oxford comma. So I stopped writing with Oxford commas. This publisher wants the Oxford comma. We have to put them all back in. So there'll be lots of commas, everyone, in this book. And um, and little, little, we've, as, uh, you know, 2023 and even 2024 bibliography has to go in that just appears that was coming or things that weren't there. And I'm like, hey, we have to add this. Um, you're never going to get everything, but some bibliography had to be switched out. And it should be out. Um, I think they're sending it to the press for actual printing, like, this at the end of January, beginning That's of so February. Exciting. I mean, I think the files will go over then. And I think things will be printed like March, April, inshallah. Like this is the hope. And then I am doing a book launch at the Bowers Museum with RC Orange County. That um, was mentioned RC, last weekend. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was? Oh, mm-hmm. cool. Marissa so, mentioned I, it. I think it's in May that book launch is it amber when is that book launch may 4th oh may 4th and i've got a couple of podcasts lined up like dominic perry with the ancient egyptian podcast he's going to have me on and um and some yeah. other podcasts so and we'll do it you'll hear about it yeah we're we're taking it i'm taking it very seriously and we've already sat down with kylie and amber and mate um to Candilian to talk about volume two of recycling for death which is kind of crazy and will include probably another 65 coffins. These ones, not royal, um, but the ones that show the best evidence of of reuse or that we can demonstrate it the best with. And they'll be mostly coffins from storage facilities mm-hmm. in various museums and those museums that allow us to publish things as opposed to those that do not. So, so there's a lot of ongoing work with coffin stuff and then um, and I'm, and meanwhile, I'm still trying to get out book proposals for my next popular book because I've spent so much time on this academic book, which is super important. It's, it's a big part of what I do, but I also like, like to, to have big, not that recycling for death doesn't have big picture ideas. It does. It does. And that's my style, but I also like to delve into people's lives. And so I'm writing the proposal for the biography of Nojmet and the, the fall of the bronze age in association with that woman's life. and. And I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Cool. Yeah. And then I'm even thinking, and you guys can tell me if you think this is crazy or not, but I'm even thinking of doing like a kind of how-to um, book, How to Smash the Patriarchy from Within. And the, the working title right now is What Would Nefertiti Do? How to Girl Boss Like a Queen. Girl Boss. Yeah. So maybe it's too much, you know, and it's certainly not going to be something I really put on my academic CV. It would be just a really fun sort of musing about how to smash the patriarchy from within the patriarchy and how this works. And the girl boss is obviously another sly, like tongue in cheek sort of thing. And then and then we're smashing the patriarchy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how that's from an Egyptian queen. Yeah. But let's see, you know, there's all these how-to bro books for like mm-hmm. how to be a stoic and how to learn from Marcus Aurelius and win at business and how to use, you know, um, mm-hmm. the rules of combat to destroy your business enemy and all of these things. So I, I think it'd be fun to learn from the queens and see what they have to teach us. Yep. But, yeah. To deal with these men in power. Exactly. Yeah. So lots of seeds being planted in the ground for future things and lots of harvests hopefully coming through for those books that are done. Yeah, busy so, 2024 yeah. already, it yeah. seems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 20, 2023 was the year of the the academic recycling for death book. 2024 will be 
writing, writing popular books again. So that'll be great. Good. Good to have both. Yeah. Well-rounded. Yeah. And today, so uh, this is our January Patreon Q&A, and we have so many questions submitted. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to get to all of them. So if you... But isn't that great? Isn't that yeah. great, Jordan? We have too many questions and we can't get to them all. And this so a... some of you aren't going to get your question asked because we are too popular and that's an awesome thing. So this is fine with us. And if your question doesn't get answered today, we will answer it next time. So don't don't worry. We'll just push it um, to February... Um, so uh, we like to just keep these to about an hour. Um, and so we'll see where we get to. Some of the questions are bigger, beefier ones. So we can obviously talk about a lot more than others. So um, I say let's dive in. Yeah, let's go for it. I've, I've got my iPad at the ready in case. I was going to say, because as always, Kara has not seen these. I, I don't know, know read them over briefly, but we, I, are, we did I not prepare answers. The... I still think of the Calendrix one from last time where I'm like, God. oh, shit, this is truly my black hole of, of bad knowledge. And yeah, but anyway, it's fine. We all have our well, skills. Eventually, we need, we were talking about this over email, but we need to get someone in who does astrology, calendars, yeah. time, yeah. and expert yeah. so they can tell us all the things, all the questions we have about that stuff. I would love it. Okay. Marissa asks, other than the 1999 cinematic masterpiece, The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser, and Rachel Weiss, what is your favorite fictional movie about ancient Egypt? Well, that's so hard because, because I mean, I guess it's Stargate. Um, uh-huh. And and so I'll go with Stargate and Stargate moving into a TV show, which which didn't suck. It was OK. I didn't really follow it like like other people. Um, but I'll, I'll go with Stargate also consulted by Stuart Tyson Smith, who did all of the language and uh-huh. the academic scene in Stargate. So J- when James Spader is there presenting his research to the other academics and and people are providing um, criticism and feedback, and it's really fun. <laughs> I have to watch it again. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, but academics are assholes. And so it's it's fun <laughs> to see how how Stuart imagined that and or how the screenwriters imagined that, because I know Stuart had a part to play in that. In, in the writing of that scene, he had a bigger part than he got to have in The Mummy. And um, so I, I'm, I'm going to go with with Stargate. And and if those two weren't there, I don't know what I would say. Prince of Egypt, I suppose. Prince of Egypt's entertaining. Um, I also like on a more recent like Moon Knight. It's not a movie, but the show mm. I, I really liked. Um, mm-hmm. I thought Moon Knight was, uh, did a good job. I'm also going to shamelessly plug Brendan Fraser was on pbs's finding my roots oh i have um, to watch that and it's so fun and he has such an interesting past and i just like i love brendan Fraser. so okay that, i'll check that out that watch. i'll check that out my, my father watches finding your roots like yeah like like old people watch jeopardy I, and that's what i do <laughs> i'm i'm your father <laughs> it's really He's fun and he does the ancestry and he told me when i was there for christmas he goes I had to cut back, you know, I kind of got a little too into the ancestry stuff and doing all the family trees. I had to like give it a rest. I was like, okay, I guess we all have our addictions, dad. Like your obsession. I'm like, there are worse things in the world. Yeah. But anyway, that was funny. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Moon Knight, I really like. I'm trying to like go through my head. Um, I have like books I can think of, but yeah, I mean, The Mummy obviously is a stand-up. So we can't. I I just watched um, Cleopatra for another podcast, and you know, the it didn't original. Um, the or original the was or the one. No, not the original twenties one, but the Liz Taylor one. Liz Taylor one, yeah. And um, it didn't suck as much as I That's thought fair. it would. I mean, mm-hmm. it's long, and I only watched clips on YouTube. I didn't watch it from beginning to end because who has the time? Um, but but you know, it was it was it was interesting. Lots of Lots of drama, lots of big yeah. reaction shots, and wow, Intrigue. those Roman, those Roman kilts that they put on that kilt they put on Mark Antony was so short. I was like, "This is ridiculous." The thighs, yeah. <laughs> We're following a trend here. Lexi asks, "What are some of your favorite historical fiction novels in or based on ancient Egypt?" We're just going with a pop culture focus right we, now. We are, it seems. I mean, I think we have to go with. Um, I think you have to answer this because to be, you guys know that I have a hard time. I love reading historical fiction. 
it's wonderful. But I have a very hard time reading historical fiction within my own mm-hmm. area of expertise. And I, yeah, so I'll, I'm going to I'm going to leave that one there and throw it to Jordan. And Amber, you can you can chime in if you want, if you have anything to say. I mean, obviously, the Elizabeth Peters stops mm-hmm. not ancient Egypt, but, you know, archaeological Victorian Egypt. Um, and I enjoyed my foray into this into this world. It was fun. There's a fun book series by Paul Doherty where Senenmut is like a detective for Hatshepsut and there's like murders and he solves murders in ancient Egypt. That's awesome. It's, it's more like YA, but that one's fun. Um, I also just started an anthology called Clockwork Cairo where it's like short stories by various authors of um, like steampunk reimagined Cairo, both ancient and modern. Um, and so those have been have been fun. Books by like P. Jelly Clark. He incorporates a lot of ancient Egypt into his work. Again, more speculative, like fantasy. Anymore. Yeah, um, obviously Elizabeth Peters. Yeah. So, uh, and her nonfiction books as well. Uh-huh. If you want some, I do like her nonfiction. Yeah, but uh, really, no one can do it better than than her as far as fiction goes. However, there is another series by a woman named Lauren Haney. It's her Lieutenant Bach series, Bach, B-A-K. It actually takes place in ancient Egypt. And she has an MA uh, in Egyptology. And so um, they're not crazy, you know. Um, And uh, I've read a couple of those and I enjoy those a lot. Have Um, you guys read Michelle Moran? I was just going to bring her up. Um, Yeah. I I liked the Nefertiti and the Cleopatra one. They're enjoyable. And the new book, I'm that. I text you guys about that is a U Chicago grad about also about ancient Egypt. It's not out yet, but it's coming out soon. And I just purchased it. Neferura. Oh, it's okay. by Malaya, Mal- Malena Evans um, and a U Chicago Egyptologist. So and it's come it's come recommended to us from a a colleague so once that's out it doesn't come out until february 13th so i feel like that should be pretty pretty good and uh we'll give that a read um once that's out and i've never read wilbur smith i've never Same. read christian jacques i haven't i haven't done these things i tried I, to um, read wilbur smith it wasn't happening for me um was uh too flowery for me i don't know it just yeah. something about it took me took me out of it I tend just not to read books by men unless I have. I'm all similar to you, Kara, and then I tend not to read books about Egypt fictionalized yeah. just because yeah. if they're so, if the person doesn't know enough, it just is like very, like even this anthology I was talking about, the author, like just, just like little things. I was like, ah, no, like that's wrong. It makes and me, I started, I, like, yeah, I, I have thrown books like that across the yeah. room and I'd rather not fill yeah. myself with rage and moments of relaxation. So I'll read things about, you know, 18th century historical yeah. fiction or medieval or whatever. And well, yeah, who I am I to know I don't know about. Wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then it's, and then it's fine. Um, Ancient India. And I'm like, sure, I, I don't know anything. Tell me. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess let us know if you're on the Discord um, what your favorite movies and books are. Because always happy to uh, get recommendations for yeah. these things. Oh, this one's a hard question. So far pointer. Oh, God. Hard just because I don't, not hard because it's difficult, but hard as in, I don't know if we can answer it. Are there any artifacts (laughs) or documents that are known to be in private collections that you wish could be studied or reviewed to answer important questions? Oh, yeah, sure. The answer is yes. Like I don't know what they are. I would take, there's so many, but it's, it's a hard question to throw at somebody and be like, Give me an artifact from a private collection. We want to know more. But there, um, there is a bronze statue of a Middle Kingdom king, maybe Amenemhat III. That's how it's generally dated in a Swiss private collection. That it was on the cover of William Kelly Simpson's Ancient Egyptian Literature for a oh, while there. Yeah, and so people may know it from that. It has inlaid eyes, and it's like it's insane and. You could do a lot dating that bronze. You could, um, or, or examining that bronze and, and doing some more chemical analysis um, of what kind of alloy the copper is. 
copper alloy um, and how the inlaid eyes are made and things like that. So I, I think that, that more could be done with that kind of a piece. And, you know, people buy things and put in their private collections and please don't do this. Um, but people do it all the time. And we, you know, as an Egyptologist, I'll go over to people's houses and they'll have antiquities in their home that they, you know, it's it's a problem to have these things in one's home. And having them in a museum is always preferable. Um, but we, everyone should know that if they they were purchased after 1970, they don't have a clean provenance, we also can't publish them. So the, you won't be able to publish them in a peer-reviewed journal and it's uh you know so there's like there's ethical rules against even working with such pieces so there's all kinds of pieces that from coffins to coins to statues and other things that that are kind of taken out of the the examination the possibility of examination which is very frustrating so um, yeah i think and, in most you know, cases so, these things are more hidden they're not advertising what they have in these collections it's mm -hmm. it's like if you know you know or they contact they contact someone they know maybe won't be as morally upstanding as Kara's saying um i just think back to that that one coffin um i think this was in the met so not a private collection but um like kim kardashian standing in front of it and then they edited what well, came from came from such a collection. collection well there's yeah. that one collection that the da in manhattan was investigating where he had all this mm -hmm legally um procured stuff in his private collection he like limped across from the met or whatever right right um but yeah I'm, I'm sure there's it's kind of insane to think about how much probably goodies are and that would like revolutionize or really like help our understanding of things that are just hidden mm -hmm. away and or mm -hmm. or were once hidden away and then you know are destroyed or something like this in the wars yeah. And, you know, through my own research, I remember when I wrote my work on northern coffins of the third intermediate period of the Ramesid period and third intermediate period. I looked at your Sotheby's and Christie's and other right. catalogs looking for coffin objects. And there were many pieces that that are were northern coffin types from the Memphite, Saqqara necropolises. And and it would have been lovely to have them in museum collections rather than in private collection or in a, in a, an auction catalog. Who knows where they've gone? It's, it's harder than you can track and see if it's gone someplace. If it's disappeared, it's in a private collection. That's um, it. The Sotheby's or Christie's catalog is what you've got. That's the publication. And that happens a lot, um, particularly for objects like coffins, masks, mummy masks, things like that. So it can, yeah. it can be super frustrating. It happens, it happens yeah. all the time disappear for decades and then reappear and everyone's like mm -hmm. they're trying mm -hmm. to you know fake the provenance or something mm -hmm. yeah but yeah um so the answer to your question is like i can't specifically think of anything but yes i'm sure there are lots of nice things that are that would people would love to study if you if you want you can go to my website and look at um the an article i wrote that's egyptian coffins from from northern locations, and it's in a festschrift for Rene van Balsam, a Dutch uh, scholar, professor, and scholar. And and you can see that I put together charts of all of these different coffins, and some of them, the only publication is said that these are Christie's. So you you can work with these things. It's not an outright publication, but it's a collection and a catalog of objects that all yeah. the objects that I know, all the objects I could find. Wow. Um, there's always going to be something else out there, but um, yeah. that's that's the list that I was able to create. Um, well, and like with, I'm just thinking of like, you know, the BM doing stuff on eBay and the directors of the Louvre, like do we having shady dealings? It's like people from museums, dubious morality have gotten caught engaging in this side business as well. So yeah, I'm sure there's yeah. lots of stuff. Okay. On similarly, uh, interesting topic, Marissa asks, not Egypt related, but considering Substack is allowing um, Nazis or far right individuals to use the platform for quote unquote free speech reasons, will you keep your Substack going or will you move it to another forum? And uh, they link an article about like what Substack is doing um, with these quote unquote Nazis blogs. Yeah. Um, I'll start and then you guys can jump in because I know you have some things to say as well. Um, 
Uh, I am a card-carrying member of the ACLU, and I've been a member of the ACLU for some time, but I renewed my membership. Like, things lapse, and then you renew them, right? This happens when, when one's giving, when uh, Roe versus Wade fell. And I decided that it was incumbent upon me to protect privacy of women, privacy of women's bodies. And it, there are people out there who truly believe they are doing what is right. And then they get to be the arbiters of what somebody should do with their body. Um, even if it's not, if, even if it's going to cause them harm. Now, I'm not trying to compare Substacks, um, the, the fight against Substacks Nazis to a right-wing, um, I'm not going to directly compare, but I am comparing it, um, it to, to taking right-wing elements out of a private media company. And I'm going to ask you, how are you to judge? Because some of the articles that I've looked at that'll say Substack is, um, you know, it, it thrives on right-wing rhetoric and, you know, what I found in the right-wing uh, documentation or, or articles and, and sites on Substack is worse than I ever imagined. Then I read some of the things that they're talking about, and there's some anti-vaxxers, there's, there's some conspiracy theories. There's, there's a lot of stuff, you know, conspiracy theories can sometimes turn out to be right. I'm not going to say that all conspiracy theories are wrong. I don't know, but I believe they have the right to say these things. And just to give you two examples from that, that I, that I think of would be somebody like Al Franken, who was a fucking brilliant Senator and was forced out by his own party for things that he supposedly did long in his past that you know, he apologized for, but because we're all being holier than thou, um, he can't, he can't be a Senator anymore. There, there seems to be this understanding that people can't be, uh, flawed, that we all have to be perfect and we have to reflect our brand that, that we have to fit into some moral left wing understanding. And I don't think that that Substack needs to be a part of this cancel culture. Um, and I, I am saying that. And my final um, point on, on this is, as I've um, watched the war, the Gaza-Israel war, there have been many moments when I've read the New York Times and gone, oh my God, this is wrong. Um, and this is the New York Times. Now, have I canceled my subscription to the New York Times? Actually, I have not. Um, do I agree with everything that this paper does? No, but you can actually see in our world globally right now that there's a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of panicked people about what's happening to the world and the failure of the systems that we have had for the last couple hundred years. And, and this is what's going to happen. And I would rather listen to Jordan Peterson or listen to a, a Joe Rogan episode and be able to listen to it rather than to be told so that I can understand what people, what a majority of people in the United States actually think rather than being told, oh no, that's wrong. It's immoral. You're not allowed to listen to that and take their platform away. Um, so it's, and I remember in graduate school having a giant conversation with two of my colleagues in graduate school, two other graduate students um, saying that free speech is free speech. And they got very upset. They're like, you can't, if it's a Nazi, you can't have free speech. I'm like, Nazis come in all kinds of ways that we don't expect. And, and sometimes you don't know, and sometimes you do, but transparency to me and letting people have access to publication and revealing themselves is often the most useful thing. There is still the, the statement that people can hang themselves by their own guitar. And I think this moment in history is the one of the most beautiful things about it, if I may be allowed to use that word for a moment that is a, you know, a clusterfuck of pain and will get worse, is that everyone is revealing themselves for what they are. We're going to look back on things in 10, 20 years and be like, holy shit, can't believe people espouse that opinion. I can't believe people said that. That's crazy. But it's, we need it to be documented. We need people to be allowed to say things. And we need to be allowed to figure things out in our own way and to be able to talk through things in our own way. It's one reason I moved all of my statements from 
Facebook and Instagram to Substack and a podcast because it's less shareable in an I'm going to destroy you dog pile. And oh, my God, you said Kyle Rittenhouse killed two black people and he really killed two white people. And I said, yes, the mistake was made. I apologize for the mistake. But the sentiments behind it stand. He killed two people at a Black Lives Matter rally. And and that stands. And the white supremacy is there. And you can try to cancel me for having made that mistake and saying, oh, my God, how dare you make a mistake? Or you can you can understand that that people are people. So this is um, free speech is is uh, so important because some of the most important free speech to protect is the most unpopular, unpopular free speech. And so I think we we need to do that. And and so I'm staying on Substack. Um, If I'm, I'm open to looking to other things, I'm not like a Substack loyalist by any means. But it's done us a lot of good. And I, I think that every private media platform that allows anybody to create a blog and a podcast and speak their voice is going to have alternative opinions. And that's okay. So, so that's, where, that's where I stand. And I'll end it with, who am I to judge what's, what's considered right or wrong? I'll say my opinion. That's fine. But I've noticed that there are a lot of people who might not fit a typical neoliberal opinion and are painted as hard right. And I don't think that's right either. I really don't. I think if you're a little leery about vaccines and you express that opinion, that doesn't mean you're an evil, hard right um, fascist. And and, and I, I do think words like Nazi and fascist are thrown around with great abandon, often by people who are using... Nazi or fascist propagandistic tactics. So, so yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's really interesting to see in this late capitalist world how private for-profit companies are the ones that are supposed to be the arbiters of this. And then how is that working? And you see things like, you know, Tucker Carlson getting kicked off of Fox and then moving to a bigger platform in, an, in a different place or people getting kicked off of YouTube um, Russell Brand getting kicked off of YouTube. I'm not saying I'm a Russell Brand supporter. I'm not. But there's no evidence that he actually, there's women speaking out. That's fine. I'm not going to listen to Russell Brand anymore if I did before, um, partly because there's some batshit crazy ideas out there. But by removing him from a YouTube platform without any court of law doing anything official, I think we're, we're playing with some serious fire here. So, um, that's that's where I stand. And yeah. Yeah, I think the bigger issue, we were just talking about this before we started recording as well. And I think the bigger issue is that these, you know, white supremacists, pro-Nazi, whatever, neo-Nazi groups have a following, which I I think is more disturbing. Like, I'm sure there were always blogs that people were writing insensitive, crazy, racist things on. Um but now that's on Substack and it has a lot of readers and, um, you know, subscribers, paid subscribers even, I think that's more of like what's disturbing to me mm-hmm. um, that it has, as you said, like within within the States, such a large following now. Um, and I think just banning these people from Twitter, or Facebook, Substack, whatever, YouTube isn't, it's just like a surface level fix. Like we have to really get at like why... Are people feeling akin to these things? Like what's going on systemically? Um, like just banning someone, they're going to go somewhere else and be able to not really a, a, a fix to any of this. So we have to really, I think, look at our society, our culture writ large and try to see like what's happening and if this is just part of something we have to go through and really work through um, and see where it ends up. But yeah, I think my thinking, and this has been my thinking for everything, like if you don't agree with what someone's saying, don't read it, don't subscribe to it, don't give it likes, don't give it anything. Um, it's like, don't give it attention, because usually, if anything, these people thrive off attention, even negative attention, like a bully or something, right? Um, so don't give it any attention. But I also agree that it's, you know, I mean, obviously, like the whole, you know, First Amendment is such a hard like, where's the line of, like, they're saying something, like, hateful and derogatory, but if it's not threatening, quote-unquote, it's okay. And where's that line of a credible threat to others? 
I think that's hard. And as you said, it's falling on private companies to make these decisions, which I don't really know what a good solution is. Um, and, and you know what? Have you listened to, I know Amber has, but the witch trials of J.K. Rowling, I think, are really interesting. Mm thing to include here. This was, a, I think, a seven-part podcast. Um, I can't remember the name of the produce, producer, but she's amazing. She's part of the Westboro, was a part of the Westboro Baptist Church that would stand with her family in front of the funerals of gay men, um, sometimes veterans, and with signs like God hates fags, things like that. And she has since left that church, and and it shook her whole reality of what was right, what was wrong, because she's saying, as a 22-year-old woman, I knew I was doing what was right. I was saving souls. I was telling people that they were committing horrific sins. Now she's switched, and she's gone through a journey, of, and we'll put it in the in the show notes um, so you can you can follow up with that um, wonderful podcast. But she's she then created a system in which she could ask herself, how do I know what the truth is for me? How do I gauge whether this is something that's right or wrong? And it's by no means easy. And she works through this step by step with J.K. Rowling. And it's, you know, I'm listening to this podcast going, oh, my God, the transgender rights people are absolutely right. This is horrible. And then I'm like, oh, my God, J.K. Rowling is absolutely right. This is absolutely And it, I even felt myself swinging back and forth. But why can't we be allowed to have these discussions about what human sexuality is? as biologists learn what the hell it is at the same time. And why can't we be allowed as a society to discuss what, what it means to be a woman, what women's protections um, and rights are, but you'll want to um, listen to it yourself and make your own decision. But um, that kind of cancel culture in this moment of great anxiety as we all stand and fall off this cliff together is so palpable and acute and um, freshly felt that I think people are just like, no, it has to be this or that. And we have to have inclusivity at all costs and or whatever it is. Um, I think if I've gone on to websites and listened to what Nazis or or KKK or or hard right white supremacists have to say, not because I'm joining their group, but because I want to know what they have to say. And it can be very useful for me. So if those things are put back in the shadows, then we we won't necessarily be able to be a part of those conversations and maybe pull some people out. Um, and I and I I I think too. I mean, obviously the U.S. has a lot of problems, but one of the things I still appreciate about it is the fact that we have free speech. Right? Like I've talked to friends and colleagues from other countries where they have more authoritarian regimes where certain. Mm -hmm. The internet's locked down. They can't go on Facebook. They're policed in so many ways in what they're allowed to consume. And if it's a far-right authoritarian government is telling me you can only consume these far-right things, um, I think us doing it, even though we view it from, we're doing it from the right side, because yes, I don't think neo-Nazis, I don't think they're spouting truths. But as you're saying, I shouldn't be able to tell someone that like they should have to come to that conclusion themselves be able to say like you're only allowed to consume this because that's what I think is right here's you, here's no. what it comes down to for me it's that that knee-jerk reaction to call someone evil and to think they're evil and to treat them as evil so let's take the Israel Hamas war both sides are are saying oh my god look at it's evil or Hamas is evil and us all Palestinians are evil or what Israel is doing in response is evil and us all Israelis are evil. And it's the and then we'll throw in words like Nazi or fascist, which is just another way of calling them evil and dehumanizing these people. If we go into and talk to or have a father who is or a friend who is a white supremacist, but doesn't necessarily talk about it that way or think about it that way and has these opinions, it's generally coming out of fear and anxiety of losing their place in the world. Of, of losing their power or their perceived power. They might even be quite upfront about their racist rhetoric and ideas, whatever it is, but that doesn't necessarily mean, I think evil is thrown about with such abandon as a weapon. That most of them aren't like sociopaths, serial killers or something, right? No, like they're just, most of these people are just normal people who can be reached, who are loved, who can love themselves who are not like devils walking around. This moment that we find ourselves is, in is, is like a Salem moment where we are going into a frenzy as a population 
and starting to point the finger and say, and to say, you are evil and you are evil, not me though. And that frenzy, we've seen it. We've seen the Spanish Inquisition. We've seen the witch books come out of England. We've seen the, the Salem witch trials and how a small inward looking loving community can turn against itself. That's an American story, Salem. And, and these witch trials are coming back. And we, I think all of us must be very careful about how we engage in that. Now, am I like on Facebook all the time? No, but did I cancel it outright? No, it's still a platform that I can connect with family and friends on. So it's still there. Is it evil? I mean, I don't think it's good for my health. I don't think it's good for a lot of things. So, but do they own Instagram? Hells yes. Is that evil? Does it make me feel ugly and old? Yes, it does. And so I don't go there because it makes me feel ugly and old in the same way I don't pick up Harper's Bazaar anymore. But like, I still have Twitter. And can I tell you how interesting when we're talking about this right now and everyone's like, get rid of Twitter, cancel your, cancel your subscription. It's owned by Elon Musk and he's evil from a neoliberal perspective or whatever. And he's outed himself as right wing. Let me tell you that the journalists and insiders in the Hamas Israeli war right now, it's the only way I can get some okay. sort of truth that I cannot get on CNN or the New York Times or MSNBC. Um, I can kind of find it on Al Jazeera. I can find, kind of find it in the Middle Eastern eye. But following journalists and reasonable people who are there on the ground in both places, are, it's a, I, I'm so glad I didn't cancel my Twitter account. I, I won't call it X, right? So fine, whatever. But like, I, I have my lines. But like this um, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, we know what's right. I'm going to cancel it. It's all done. Be very careful when you demonize somebody. Um, the, all of us are real people trying to figure when out our lives. You're in a kind of making, moment. you're kind of then making that as if they can't be saved. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they like must that, be taught. They're evil. And that yeah. there's no hope of like change yeah. or like us yeah. coming back together and seeing like a little crown. You're kind of just like yeah. washing our hands of it and saying like it's done. Yeah. Which feels yeah. very hopeless. And maybe people feel that way. Like I get that. But um, I think we have to believe that people can be rehabilitated um, and can see reason and all these things so that we can hope and for the like same... a better, better. But. Climate. But at the same time, even saying, oh, my God, all of Substack is evil. These people who are doing this can easily go too far into the category of being perceived as evil themselves by others. Yeah. It can go too far. And you yourself, by making the charge, can end up walking the same path that you think you're speaking against. This is my point. That's and, my, yeah. Yeah. So like. That. So I'm, I'm staying and I think it's OK. We can all calm the fuck down. And um, it's not, not these are not going to be an easy couple of years. The next couple of years, you know, really 2020 to 2025, really 2026. We've been through a lot already. We're going to go through a lot more. Now we've got missiles going from Pakistan to Iran and Iran to Pakistan. And we've got you know, Lebanon getting involved, the Red Sea and the Houthis. And I heard, on that, you know, I'm listening to the NPR and they're like, yes, um, Yemen has experienced famine. And I'm like, yeah, who fucking caused that? It's American bought bombs from Saudi who's bombing Yemen. And don't try to tell me they're experiencing famine. It was done to them. But they were starved. That's, yeah. That's, so, so these passive ways of expressing things, the media, they drive a lot of people crazy. It's one of the reasons I follow journalists on, on Twitter so they can correct a, a bad New York Times headline. But yeah. You know, these um And this is why studying history matters it's everywhere. because it's, you need to know the gonna, context yeah. of all this stuff. Yeah. Am I gonna get rid of NPR? No. Um, I was I did a, a really interesting death conference this weekend and I was standing in front of this this weird place in Forest Lawn, which is a museum and has like these two Jesus paintings. I could talk about them in like more because it's pretty crazy. And um there are these like six individuals, one woman, five men, I do believe buried in forest lawn and really divinized instead, uh, divinized in this place. There was the man who painted one of these Jesus paintings in 1905, and he's buried there in this forest lawn place. The guy who created forest lawn, who calls himself the builder in a really creepy matrix way, is buried there. And some scientist whose name I don't remember, who's called a scientist and a psalmist, i.e. he believed in God and was a scientist, good for him. He's buried there. And the dude whose name I don't know, 
um, who carved the president's faces into the sacred indigenous mountain at Mount Rushmore, right? And and these people are all set up as as this um, the goodness of America, right? Like I joked as we were watching the resurrection of Jesus in this forest lawn museum, they just needed to put an American flag in Jesus's hand, and they and you got it, right? It's the perfect Christo Christo fascist, and I will use that that word. Um, or Christian nationalist is fine too. You don't have to be so inflammatory as to call it Christo fascism. But yeah, put an eagle flying over and it's it's perfect, right? And um, and I said, wow, we're really reckoning with this. This will be our our election come November. And look at all these horrible these people being divinized. And this one of the scholars standing next to me is older than me, probably 15, 20 years old than me, said, Wow, you're cynical. And I said, and he said, You have to judge these people in their time. You know, it's the typical boomer. Um, argument. You have to judge these people in their time. In their time, this was fine. And I came home and told my husband about it. He's like, in their time, people knew it was wrong then. They, there were people who knew that founding a country called the United States of America on Black unpaid labor and stolen indigenous land, people knew it was wrong. And they spoke up and they said something. But we are now hitting a reckoning point where we've known it's wrong. We've tried to ignore it. We tried to, to be innocent as James Baldwin might say. And now we have to reckon with it. And so, of course, there's all of this rhetoric out there, some right, some left people in the middle going, what the hell? And there's a whole lot of shit that I think people should be okay with not having an opinion on. Because we don't know yet. Like AI, everyone's like, it's evil. It's not evil. It's going to save the world. No, it's evil. How the fuck do you know? You don't know because it's new and we haven't invented it yet. And it's like the beginning of the freaking airplane and we don't know what's going to happen. So like not having your mind made up about something that might scare the shit out of you is okay. And reading different viewpoints that somebody might tell you is a conspiracy theory, but you're like, I wonder what that is, is okay. And one of the biggest things about being in therapy, like in general, (laughs) that they they teach you is to like learn to be okay with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. if you have anxiety or something, it's like so many people just want it to go away or to fix yeah. it. Right. And I think you to can know apply they're this, on the right side of history. And I think you yeah. can apply this to like writ large. It's OK to be uncomfortable yeah. and to be scared or feel yeah. unsafe or something like this yeah. metaphorically. And I think we should lean into it as using a therapy mm-hmm. term. Like mm-hmm. it's OK to be uncomfortable or meet someone you disagree with or from a totally different background and not to feel threatened or something like this and and to look at it more with curiosity again I'm going back to Mm -hmm. all my therapy to be curious about the uncomfortableness and I think maybe that's like why we all study ancient cultures because we're curious about this difference but for a lot of people it scares them yeah you're able to see it actually sometimes we can't right I wrote the good kings for this reason and people are how dare you say that bad thing about Akhenaten or how dare you take down Ramses II and we still demonize the Persians versus the Greeks. We mm-hmm. still demonize China versus the Roman Empire. Um, not that they were in direct conflict with one another, but they're the empires that are compared against one another in classes that I've been a part of in the last 20 years. And, you know, it, it's when you're studying history, you're not necessarily on one side or another. So you're able to have, to some degree, a more dispassionate perspective. But as we look out on the landscape today, and if you see all Russians or the Russian state or China as evil, well, trust me, people see the American state in exactly the same way with good reason and with good reason. And I, I think um, that mm-hmm. needs to be understood that we need so desperately to be innocent and to be right. But we may not get that this time around. <laughs> this isn't a World War II kind of yeah. situation that we are heading into where the things are easy and easily understood. And just the Ukraine situation versus the Gaza situation clarifies that. That in both cases, they're like, they bombed a hospital and all these children. And on one side, there's outrage. And on another side, people turn their heads and look away and pretend it's not there. Our bombs are used in both cases, mm-hmm. arguably. Maybe not for the bombs Russia. in Ukraine. That would be Russian bombs. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But like, they're American bombs bombing hospitals and people are like, yeah, but there was a base there or something. There must be a reason. And people turn away from 30,000 plus dead people, mostly women and children. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, they must have deserved it. And so this is it's um, it's interesting to see America's position in both of those situations and to realize there is no right side. There's no way to be to, to decide how this is going to work in this 
a Substack Nazis are bad kind of way and let's leave uh-huh. Substack. It's not going to work. So just live your life. Try to do the best you can. I think if you leave things because of far right groups like that, you would mm-hmm. constantly be moving platforms because yeah. you're going to be everywhere. I'm keeping all my shit. I got so, my Facebook. I got my my Instagram. I don't think just I leaving got, is you know, the solution. I think we need more engagement. Yeah, and and use what you think is appropriate in the time. Sometimes it's going to be in. It's going to be a Twitter time. You know, sometimes it's going to be a Facebook time, and that's okay. And sometimes these things are going to fail, and um, and we'll all have Schadenfreude when they do, because that's what people do. It's like, oh, Zuckerberg, it failed, haha, or whatever. Um, but just you know, be kind. Do what you think is right in your local space. You can't solve all the problems of the world with your opinions. And you don't need to. I think you don't think, need to. Think locally. Yeah. And so lets us connect with people locally. And it lets us have opinions that are not dogpiled on and not shared to create outrage. I actually found, find Substack to be that place where we have a discussion that creates a thoughtful discourse of musings and back and forth, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that in a safe space for us. Um, I expect that's why people of different agendas from ours are there too, because they also want to try to think about how things are happening in a safe space. I'm, I'm not saying that I agree with their opinions, but they certainly have the right to express them. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we're happy to have your opinions on this. So let us know, you know, what you guys think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. An Egypt, ancient Egypt related question. Uh, Noir88 asks, in one of the episodes, okay, so about your, uh, a woman getting born as a male Osiris, that everyone gets reborn mm. as an Osiris figure. Yeah. That they yeah. have to recreate themselves into this true self. Yeah. Um, they were asking, if did you publish this somewhere? How did other Egyptologists react to it? Can you give us some, some background on this? Um, do you have any pictures of materials that you can post? And then also, when's your new book coming out, which we also, we already touched upon. But yeah, so can you talk about your... Your um, Assyrian female to male. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I publish all of my work. I have to be a little bit behind with how I put things up on my website, but I publish everything on my website, which is a Squarespace page. And I haven't bothered to buy the URL again. So I think I'm Kara Cooney at Squarespace. I don't really care. You can <laughs> Google me. You'll find that page. It's there. People are like, you should, you should have a different site, whatever. I don't care. Um, but um I'm sure it looks more professional and fancy, but yeah. Um, But I can't publish things that an academic press is trying to make a bit of a a bit of money off of and publish it right away when it comes out. So I wait a little bit um, for my new stuff. But within a couple of years, my new stuff will be out as well. But these articles are old. Um, These articles date back to hell. I don't know, Um, Amber. If you you want to maybe two. they're 20 years old. Early, early 2000s. Early yeah. 2000s, I think. Yeah. Jesus, Mary Let's be and generous Joseph. and say around 2005 or so. Oh, dear. Let's okay, see. so so 20 years ago, I came up with, um, with uh, these concepts of how divinity and... E- and I'm not the first one to, to discuss this. I would look at Anne Macy Roth's article, Mother Sky, Father Earth, which is a seminal article that really changed Egyptological opinion. Uh, about 2010, how, okay. The gender okay. transformation and death. Um, but about how, how does the divinity... masculine begin and the feminine end 20, 2019. Okay. Fragmentation of the female, regendering. Yeah, so late 2000s. 2000s. Okay, okay. It's not, it's, it's not too bad. But you're essentially looking at how divinity is worked out through a binary gender understanding, not a gradient, which we know is how biological sexuality expresses itself, but through a binary patriarchally expressed male or female gender. And and given that, um, how does it work in the funerary understanding of transformation from death to a kind of rebirth in an afterlife space? And the texts are super interesting when you look at it from this perspective. And you you see on a coffin, and the kinds of work that I did that was new, was looking at coffins and going, whoa, they're using he, she pronouns in the Book of the Dead transformative spells, but they're using she, her for a dead woman it, when they're naming her and giving her identity and her titles. And how cool is that? And other Egyptologists up to this point, and I'm not blaming them and saying they're evil or saying they're wrong. It's just, you know, we, we learn as we go. They, but they would say, oh, it's scribal error or it was a mistake 
or, you know, so, but I am arguing, particularly with a coffin like Henut Mahit, a gold, it's a gilded coffin in the British Museum. Some of it, the outer coffin of cedar wood, no joke of a coffin. This is really expensive and made by the best craftsman money could afford for this Theban elite woman. She has she, her pronouns when it's naming her on the central text inscription on the lid and he, him pronouns for her with her name there. Henu Mahid is carefully inscribed alongside he, him pronoun for the transformative part. So it's, it's a wonderful way of understanding from the Egyptian perspective that masculinity is required for that spark of renewal. And if you look, and then I talk about, as Anne Macy Rock before me did, and others as well, the mythological basis of this, that the god Osiris creates himself from his his sexual act with himself. And you can look at the ceiling crypt of um, Dendera Temple, and you can see Osiris being dead and prone, and then the erect penis comes up, and then his hand comes around it, and he creates himself, then he rises up from his funerary beard, and he's able to recreate himself through an act of sex with himself. And I'm not saying there's no female element there, because his hand, the jaret, is a female element in that moment. And the coffin, the ut, or the or the afdet, or there are a number of, of terms that can be associated with the coffin, is often feminine, not always. Um, Sometimes the coffin or sarcophagus can be called Neb Ankh, Lord of Life, and have a masculine identity. But um, it, it's the vehicle, the feminine element, the vehicle for the transformation. But the spark is a masculine thing. And there are other cultures that thought the same. Indeed, there is the Lotus Sutra of the Buddhists that understands enlightenment as being a masculine thing. And if a female is to become enlightened, according to this text, and I don't have the exact details at my fingertips, but if a female is to become a woman, is to become enlightened, um, she needs to temporarily become a man and then she is enlightened and then she go back to becoming, to being a female. And it's the same with the Egyptians. The woman doesn't stay Osiris. She melds with Osiris as a dead person for a short period of time. She creates her transformation. And then once she is transformed, she turns back, it seems, into her eye her female identity and wears the white garment of purity and moves into the afterlife space and might still be called Osiris Henut Mahit or whatever her name is in a funerary text or a coffin. But that transformation is a liminal thing. It is a temporary thing. And the, the fait accompli as represented when they show a woman in her white garment, that's her having gotten to that space. So I worked with the Ba's and the Ka's and the Ankh's and the different parts of the person and how they're gendered in the Egyptian material, whether it's a coffin or Nushapti or Book of the Dead. That was really fun work. And I think I have two or three articles on this. No. So just go to publications and you'll find it there. There's more than enough for you to read. <laughs> but really cool that I feel like in modern Western cultures, obviously besides um, being transgender, a lot of people have a very hard binary with gender. And I think it's cool to think about changing gender momentarily and then coming back. And so it being also like constructed by time and space and context, um, your gender identity in ancient Egypt, not just like going from one to the other finish, but like changing back and forth and the fluidity amongst it, I think is really interesting. Yeah. And it's it's super cool to look at coffins of women from the earlier New Kingdom, and they're very androgenizing. Huh. They have to be, you would argue. And I would also argue this is why when you look at a coffin of the 21st dynasty, for instance, the breasts that are put on the coffin for a woman are so schematic. So uh -huh. um, they're like half moons underneath the hair. Uh -huh. And they don't look like breasts. Like a Ramsden coffin would have the curvature of a breast in certain contexts. But the 21st dynasty coffins, are really turning the dead into a divinity, into Osiris, into the sun god for a woman or for a man. Uh -huh. So her face can be this kind of feminine thing. Yeah. Um, but as time goes on, it becomes more and more Osirian, more and more androgynous. And the breasts just become these schematic half moons. And so rosettes they're more, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like um, the rosettes are the coolest part because 
if you do an, an anatomical uh-huh. examination of the human breast, the, the mammary mil- gland, yeah, the mammary gland and the milk ducts actually do have that mm-hmm. rosette pattern. And so putting that onto the nipples is mega cool, uh-huh. um, and, but also a hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic way of marking a woman as someone who can feed others, who has that maternal aspect to her, but doing so through symbol rather than through a physical exact representation of a human breast yeah. or a realistic, realistic representation of a human breast. Yeah. Yeah. So have a look at those. And then if you have any follow-up questions about the articles, let us know. We have time for one more or should we? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Go we'll for do it. One more yeah. question. Okay. This is from Brian. Um, Brian's interested in getting everyone's take on animal cults during the late period and later Greco-Roman times. What is up with literally so many, literally millions of various species so late in Egyptian history? You know, I understand that death was commodified as a way to increase the status of the priests, but why do we have such a massive uptake in animal burials? Like, why then, essentially? I love this question, and you know I'm going to tell you to follow the money because yep. that's what a good social historian will do. So my, and I'm not saying belief is not a part of this. Of course it is. However, by the time you get to the late period and really starting in the third intermediate period, Egyptian temples are privatized. (laughs) We understand this, right? We know what it means to be privatized. We know what it means to lose your state funding. Um, And we can imagine maybe in the city of New York, where they don't have the funding for their libraries to stay open on the weekends, that, that people eventually, like in 10 years, they'd be like, you know what? The libraries are now private. You can either become a member of it or not. And we're not Mm going to fund this as a state anymore. But, you know, you had all of the state funding for temples from the old kingdom, middle kingdom, into the new kingdom. And with the fall of the new kingdom and the Bronze Age collapse, you don't have that kind of funding for this temple institution anymore. And at the same time, you have all of these priests who are looking at and working with a funerary system that has become increasingly threatened by lack of security, lack of a safe place for a burial, and has professionalized. So you have you have two things going on simultaneously. One, the lack of a secure burial in a necropolis and more people looking towards the temple as a place to bury their dead, a, a reworked temple, a, a, a place within four walls that can be protected. And you have a lack of state funding. You also have arguably the rise of a pseudo middle class or... Um, Growth in Egyptian population such that more people can read and write, more people have disposable income, and more people are creating their burials. And so you have a professional, and this is a much more complicated story, obviously, I'm simplifying to a great deal. But you you have a rise of a professional class of people who can afford a burial and cultic objects. And you have the rise of a professional class of priests working in a temple that is not being state-supported anymore, who need income. And so you can create income, number one, through a funerary, through funerary channels. And that's going to be a West Bank institution, temple institution kind of thing. And you actually see that professionalization kind of splitting off from the traditional temple in a way into a coakite system. Um, and we can put some some things in the show notes about coakites, but but very um, systematized um standardized standardized professionalized i mean this is the time period when the book of the dead is like you get this many chapters this is how it looks and you do this one first and that one second i'm gonna say it's always that way because there's but there's more rules and standards applied Uh and people get to pick between this kind or that kind or whatever at the same time a temple like karnak temple in the east bank or the the white walls at memphis or the the temple of Unu at Heliopolis. They're like, oh shit, King's not supporting us anymore. What are we going to do? Well, we can sell shit. <laughs> and I'm not saying they're cynically thinking of this. I think people are looking for new ways of creating income and people are looking of new for new ways to get into a temple space where they feel they can connect with the divinity and change their lives for the better. Look. And it's not surprising then that the temple, which is becoming a more open place, if you looked at a temple in the New Kingdom, you you most people 
let's say the 18th dynasty would not be able to go into the front courtyard, I would argue, most people, and you would stand in front of the pylon and there you would experience the temple. As time goes on, more and more people are allowed into a temple space. There's even ambulatories that are, that are giving people kind of in-between sort of space. They don't go into the temple, but they're in the temple walls. There's ways of letting people in. And if you want to connect with divinity, but you're not allowed to stand in front of the statuette of the god, of the god Horus at Edfu, like you're not that important, but you can pay for a hawk to be, that, that's perhaps being raised at the aviary there at Edfu Temple to be killed for you and then mummified, you would be taking the spirit of the god the, and the killing part is not expressly stated. It's just, it's now dead. So it's gone to the other side, right? Um, but they are, they are killing these things. They do have broken necks. And Salima Akram has proven this with her examination of, of animal mummies. Um, but you would be able to then connect with the spirit of divinity who has flown to the other side, connected to the other side. And you can give it your identity, your prayer, your heartfelt wishes, your prayers for your family. And it will be taken to the other side. And so your money will be spent on a kind of express yeah. mail to divinity, yeah. like to an the other side. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And people go apeshit for this. This is like, oh my God, there is real magic here. People find this to have a real healing capacity for them mm -hmm. to connect with their divinity, obviously, because there have been animal necropolis found in Saqqara with millions of puppy mummies and mm -hmm. cat mummies and crocodile mummies, maybe not millions of crocodiles, but certainly millions of cats and dogs. And this is an established practice, too, of the Egyptians writing letters to the dead, right? Or mm -hmm. their Akikers, their local important people. So they always go to the thing they think will intercede on their behalf that they have some type of connection to. So I think yeah. it naturally turning to animal mummies Mm -hmm. um, is a natural progression. Like it's not out of nowhere that this trend starts picking up. I mean, essentially it's a priesthood saying, oh my God, we've got this awesome way of creating income. People need and want us to be intercessors in their lives. Mm -hmm. We need to fucking scale it. And so I, you get sorry, a wing, not a whole hawk. <laughs> they scale it by picking animals that can be bred easily within their captive spaces. Hawks cannot. And Salim Akram has proven that most hawk mummies are, as you say, Jordan, a, a wing, a, a head, yeah. a something. Yeah, because the it's kind of like a saint in a medieval church setting. You know? <laughs> yeah. St. Catherine's head is going to go one place, fingers another place, a clavicle someplace else. Yeah. But you don't, you know, to have the whole saint, that's, that's too much. It's a big deal. And it's this, I would absolutely compare it to the relics of saints and mm -hmm. those reliquaries being extraordinarily expensive, giving the people who hold them a perceived magical power, if not, a, a magical power they believe they have on their own because they have the saints um, blessing and body with them. I think people would have felt the same about their their hawk mummy or whatever. And it's beautifully wrapped and ostensibly displayed. People don't spend a whole lot on something and they not to show it off. And it's going to maybe have a little coffin that goes with it. And they're going to show everyone. Maybe they buy the animal and then they show the animal in their house or they display it uh -huh. in some way. And then they commission the coffin and then it's another ability to display it and when it's deposited by the same professional group of priests. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's without belief or that it's, and I don't want to treat it completely cynically, but in the same way that Martin Luther looked at the Roman Catholic Church yeah. and all of these indulgences and people buying and selling elements of what should be grace or, or moral living, and people push back against that. I think that the selling, the commissioning and selling of these animal mummies also reached a Baroque period yeah. in which there are, and the millions of them, when, when an archaeologist finds one of these things, they're like, oh shit, there's the rest of my career gone. Because I know of archaeologists who are like, nope, 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 not doing that. And then they just class it up. They're like, there's an animal necropolis there. I'm not dealing with it. Yeah. Some other archaeologists can do it. It's not for me. It's smelly, dirty work. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe at yeah. its root is a an honest, ideologically impactful thing. But then what do humans, what are humans good at? We're good at taking advantage of things for, yeah. for money reasons in most cases. So if someone sees like, hey, all these people are willing to 
you know, buy these mummies. We can start not putting full hawks in them. We can just start doing bones or working the system in their in their favor. But it has to be living flesh and bone and feathers and reptile skin or whatever it is. It has to be still part of it. Once alive, it has to have been a part of this living community of beings and spirits such that when it is dispatched, that that life becomes an extinguished life that can the then move on to someplace yeah. else. It, it, the sacrifice element is also very important. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot has been written about animal mummies, but I think a holistic, like Michael Mann, ideological, economic violence and political perspective would be really cool yeah. to apply to the animal mummy cult and, um, and really go further with it. Um, it's also something, if I'm going to put my reuse hat on, it's something that can't be reused. You, you can't take somebody else's dead ibis, thoth, uh, sacrifice and sacrifice it again. Yeah, it's a one time. It's already, it's a one time thing. It is a one moment in space and time. And you can't, you can't redo it. You can't take somebody's mummy and like, oh, I'm going to rewrap this and we're going to do it all and again. Maybe that's, maybe that's why there's so many is because they can't yeah. be reused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, it's just super cool human behaviors and how they, they try to deal with the problems in their lives and how they try to find God Love and that. how people, exploit that or make money off of it or systematize it or whatever. And we have many of these things in our world today, um, you know, but I, I, I could go on, but we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. The animal mummies are always interesting and we'll throw yeah. up some other readings about those too, if people are interested. Yeah. So if your question, if we didn't get to your question today, um, we will get to it next month. So don't fear. I, I've already copied over uh, those ones and put them in our, our, our box for, for February. So we will get to those. And thank you all for sending in such insightful, thoughtful questions. And I hope you enjoyed our answers. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Bye all. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.